Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this short episode, we're joined by DC-based writer Mike Crumpler, who we reached out to after reading his piece, Blissful Beginnings, Elliot Rogers' Sexual Awakening, published on his blog at mcrumps.com. Yes, this is an Elliot Roger episode, so get ready for equal parts terror and cringe. Mike examines Elliot as a literary figure, an anthropomorphic McMansion, an aberration of the mythos and ethos of liberal Hollywood, and an accidental accelerationist driven by his own internalized capitalism. Plus, Eminem. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller with guest Mike Crumpler. Let's get into it. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. We are in the studio today with Mike Crumpler, a DC-based writer and editor. Dan Little Internet and I first came across Mike's work in 2018 via an essay he penned for the Jacobite titled The Aeneid for Incels, which looks seriously at incel culture. To borrow Mike's framing, his approach sought to understand not only how this type of subject thinks, but also the social mechanisms that make the incel and the incels breakdown possible. We found the text incredibly helpful in thinking about contemporary radicalization. Longtime listeners of the pod might recall that one of our early episodes took that text as a central object of inquiry. Now Mike has published his first segment of a new project, which comprehensively unpacks the autobiographical writing of Ur Incel Elliot Roger, the 22-year-old California spree shooter who killed six people and injured 14 others before killing himself on the evening of May 23rd, 2014. We invited Mike on the podcast because we were impressed by how, in this essay, he not only demystified the character of Elliot Roger, who in online incel networks has been troublingly immortalized as an aspirational icon, but also Mike showed him to be the human manifestation, or maybe a tragic human byproduct, of the clearly broken norms of the the turn-of-the-century Western society. This essay is not about Elliot Roger so much as about the sociopathy of capitalism, the intersection of capitalism and toxic masculinity, the changing state of objects and traditional identity formation through objects. Mike Crumplar, welcome to the New Models podcast. Thank you. That's a that's a great introduction. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, but you did actually, and you know, you expanded a couple, on it. Yeah, expanded on it in a couple thousand words that are totally brilliant. <laughs> so you. that's a long-winded intro, but I mean, maybe as a way of starting, we could just sketch out the parameters of your recent essay. The format you chose was one that takes Elliot Rogers' own writing as your primary material, and so I wonder, like, why this approach and why Elliot rather than than any of the other similar actors that have entered published consciousness in the past 20 years. When the Elliot Rogers shooting occurred in 2014, I was in college at the time. I was actually in Germany studying abroad. Whoa. And I remember hearing about it on social media and being immediately struck by its novelistic and literary quality, especially since so much of the stuff that German studies deals with has to do with coming to terms with the Nazi past. It was impossible to overlook it. I've been circling around this subject of Elliot Roger text for years, and I feel like I've been able to approach it 
more and more directly. That was different than in 2014 because that was the year of the Mattress Girl performance. It was a high point of the woke feminist campus culture. And I was in college at the time, so I feel like I was surrounded by that. It was just unthinkable to question certain things or to sort of talk about these in the way that we can talk about it now in 2020 and after Trump and after a lot of the events of the later part of the decade in in intellectual culture. It's interesting to think about your changing gaze on Elliot Rodger and what he might represent, but I think maybe we can just start with what this text is. For instance, in the beginning of this essay, you bring up Ted Kaczynski and you show how Elliot Rodger's writing is fundamentally different. Can you unpack that a little bit? The Ted Kaczynski text, it's a manifesto. It's a very philosophical worldview, and it has its own internal coherence, whereas the Elliot Roger text, you don't read that and get a philosophy from it, but rather you get a narrative of his life because that's what produces the incel and not this philosophical worldview. That's a really important distinction and is why I approach it as a literary thing. You talk about the psychogeography of uh, Santa Barbara being integral to his formation. I think it can't be overlooked that Ted Kaczynski went crazy because he was in Berkeley and (laughs) his withdrawal was also very much like a reaction to the psychogeographic nature of California and the Californian ideology, a very different iteration of it. 70s Berkeley version, not you know, Santa Barbara, but also like in the sense that Ted was frustrated by his inability to fully escape from that, whereas like Elliot is desperately trying to to fit the mold of it. I mean, I think of them as somehow, I always had them in some sort of a dualistic thing in my mind, probably built up a little bit more than is justified, but I don't think they're just criminals with online followings. Even if there's not any philosophy that you can directly glean from the text, there's a lot you can infer from it. And there was still, you know, ideological motivation for the crime and like- Similarly, low kill counts also, like it was much more about the ideology and the media than than the crimes. Highly mediagenic kills. Highly mediagenic killings, yeah. Anyway, that's an aside. The critics that don't appreciate the analytic take on it are going to be like, well, why are you approaching this that way? And they'll say that for the Ted Kaczynski text just as they say it for the Elliot Roger text. And that's why I say both did these bad things. And I think that nevertheless, there's a general interest in them or there's something that can be learned from it. Absolutely. And I feel as if I feel as if there's an audience that's interested in reading this. So yeah, I don't there's know. also just a distance yeah. from the trauma. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's not exactly. Too soon, right? Yeah, too soon. I don't soon. think it was too soon, even then, though. Honestly, I feel like your experience as being in college during this it must really be so different yeah. than mine. I mean, I was in Germany, but it was very, very distant and already an abstract thing that I could, you know, symbolize. So immediately the document had this poignancy. You know, also like a lot of Schadenfreude. I mean, it, it reads like satire. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that was also my perspective in a sense, too, because it's not as if I could have been killed in something like that. Especially since like, you're married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. You have the thing. You, got you have the, the thing. You. The heavenly, <laughs> heavenly sex. <laughs> heavenly thing. You were able to yeah. acquire a wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely one of the people that Elliot would have hated, especially since my wife is blonde. Wow. But like, Typical Stacy is the condensation of all his longings for like that specific form. 
Yeah. So my twisted world, this is the text that Elliot Roger writes. And as you say, it's not a manifesto, it's a Bildungsroman. And you make this great point where you say what Elliot learns, what makes him an incel, what constitutes his moral development is also what kills him. It is his tragic flaw. I think what makes your interrogation of Elliot's world so useful is that he's not an author, he's a subject in your work. And so I think that's a really interesting turn. I don't approach him as this author that intended to write this novel, he was not aware of the literary qualities that he contained. Right. And, and this is a distinction that's understood by Lacan. He was probably a psychotic as opposed to a neurotic in that when the analyst suggests another reading of his words, he is becomes paranoid um, and is like, no, I said literally these words. Right. He doesn't really understand irony or his sense of irony is completely flat. That is a huge obstacle for how to cure the incels. Because Elliot Rogers doesn't see the double meaning in his words, he's this clinical subject that is a psychotic subject. And I think that that sets the scene for how we can appreciate this without romanticizing him as this glorious literary author. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this is one thing, though, that's confused me. I can't imagine anyone unironically considering him a hero or as someone aspirational, even if you're an incel. I don't think like that they Ted, really idolize right. him like that. It's a, it's a, a meme. meme. Right. It's sort of a, yeah, I don't think, but also within sure, the incel sure. communities, the aspiration is to like out, you know, despair each other on the forums. Like who is the most pathetic? He is an aspirational figure kind of in that like sense. Just like a masochism yeah. kind of competition. Yeah. And also everything is about misunderstandings of texts on the internet. I mean, you don't know how everyone's reading everything. I mean, there's the people that really are truly, ironically appreciating it in some sense. But then there are the people that aren't. And there's a lot of them, too. And it's really hard to differentiate. Mm. So To make a little bit of a leap, one of the figures you bring up in this essay is Brad Easton Ellis. And how, in a lot of ways, Elliot Roger really sincerely aspired to the what we would see as a sociopathic aspirations of Brad Easton Ellis's protagonists. And it was in a way, like the failure of that archetype in a 21st century or post-millennial, post-economic crash or what have you, that is somehow the tension in Eliot's subject. The Brett Easton Ellis protagonist no longer working in any form? Or how how do you see that? Maybe can you unpack the relationship between the Brett Easton Ellis capitalist sociopath and the person that Eliot Roger aspired to be? Elliot Roger basically is from a similar background as Brad Easton Ellis, which is just one of the crazy coincidences of this text. <laughs> They're just spoiled rich kids from Los Angeles. I say, both are rich, spoiled brats raised in San Fernando Valley, both experience idyllic California childhoods torn apart by divorce, both describe their cartoonishly materialistic enjoyment with affectless nihilism. Both are writers. And then the difference is that Ellis sublimates his incel tendencies into writing, whereas Elliot Roger can't actually create the thing that he wants to create. However, in the process of failing, he produces this text, which is dialectical if there was ever right, that could be said totally. about anything. And I feel as if American Psycho, Patrick Bateman character, 
lines up with Elliot Rogers' father or how Elliot right. Roger, how he idealizes his power, his ability to attract women, but also how that's distanced from any real appreciation of love. Can you build that character a bit for us, how Elliot sees his father, what his father does, what some of his behavioral patterns are? Yes. And in fact, I don't want to start with his father. I want to start with his grandfather. Oh, yeah. This because, is crazy. Yes. Right. That's <laughs> crazy. crazy. I didn't know that until you And the whole idea of shooting. So he, right on the first page, goes two generations back and talks about his family history and says, my family was aristocratic, but is in decline. We are no longer aristocrats that we once were. And my grandfather was, he was a photographer and was very renowned. But what he doesn't say and throughout the manifesto is that his grandfather, George Roger, was famous for taking photos of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp after it was liberated by the British in World War II, which I just think is such an insane coincidence. Peter Roger, Elliot's father, was also a photographer and film producer and filmmaker by way of photography, went to Hollywood. And if you look at Peter Rogers' work, a lot of it's very mediocre. <laughs> it's artistic photos of like girls' asses and <laughs> like stuff that's it, it, in the bath, the men's room of like an upscale pizza restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it's very it's very tacky. And then the next generation is Elliot Roger. But also, he was the producer of the Hunger Games. That's the thing. Producer, crucial. one of the producers of the Hunger Games. Yeah, and he that's also crucial. made a documentary called Oh My God which is basically interviews with celebrities about what they think God is. And it was like critically panned (laughs) and a financial failure. His grandfather asceticized horrific death. His father then, I guess, was still trying to heal himself from that memory. And then Elliot is just a wild eruption of all of that after two generations. I mean, I just think it lines up so incredibly that it seems like you just cannot make this up, that it's like this cross-generational return of the repressed that leads right to the ur trauma of the Holocaust. I mean, <laughs> through and, Hollywood. And that is how this text starts. That is the start of Elliot Rogers' Twisted World. The fact that he doesn't say the thing about the Holocaust and his grandfather, who also afterwards said something to the extent of photographing the carnage and the dead bodies and trying to make them as aesthetic as possible. He realized this sin that is photography itself and didn't want to be a war correspondent anymore. That relation between violence and the camera characterizes the Elliot Roger gaze because he's always walking around in public places in Santa Barbara being a voyeur and looking at happy couples, imagining how he wants to kill them. And, uh, and narrating them. I mean, he's the subject like, of his video work. Yeah. They're all self-portraits yeah. mostly. Yeah. Also in the realm of Lacan, I mean, the double entendre of to shoot a photograph to capture an image. I mean, there is that idea of not just acquiring, but of owning and annihilating, killing yeah. the subject with the lens, right? So his father was this figure that had this McMansion, drove nice cars, Can you build that character a little bit so that we have a sense of who his father himself was? There's a really fascinating interview after the shooting that I think was on 2020 with Peter Roger. And the gist that I got from that is that it's this eloquent but very sleazy guy that was more than willing to just sort of be like, oh yeah, my son's such a freaking terrible person. I'm so sorry to all the people, the real people who had to suffer from this terrible offspring that I've created. He did not like his son. And it was a very strange thing to see this on the 2020 interview. 
he is very distant to Elliot, but he possessed something that Elliot desired his entire life. And Elliot's whole thing is trying to answer the question of what does my father have that I don't have? It attracts this desire of everybody else. And the only thing that he can come up with is the money that his father has. But that doesn't even click because what he doesn't understand is his father was just able to schmooze with people and tell people what they wanted to hear. As you can see in this 2020 interview where he's trying to be like, oh yeah, I know, I'm so sorry about all this. My son was such a horrible dude. And <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing I still can't get. Is it a specific like mental diagnosis or something where he had no interiority and couldn't imagine anything other than these sort of utilitarian simple models interacting with each other? Almost like an automaton. I think we're kind yeah. of avoiding the elephant in the room of like neuro yeah, neurodiversity yeah. here because like he's so clearly suffering from some level of autism. Right. His inability to understand those types of things. It's just right. autism. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a mix of things. The way that you would talk about this in the DSM terms, I would say that he is a narcissist that is somewhere on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And I there think that go. the okay. DSM person would be completely satisfied with that as a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat autistic, narcissistic. I like the diagnosis that Elliot Rodger is the human personification of the Nick Manson ideology. Yeah, the Nick Manson. <laughs> the Nick Manson. I also thought um, subprime gentleman would work too. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But yes. can you the, unpack? He is the first human personification of the Nick Manson ideology. Yeah. That's so that perfect. That is like totally, one of yeah. the best insights that I make in that, that I'm proudest of. Okay, where to start with this? He moves around a lot in his youth. He doesn't talk about any social world. It's just events in sequence that happen and things that just occur around him. For instance. So he moves around McMansions in idyllic Southern California. He talks about doing things like taking very long walks before he gets his driver's license. And when you take really long walks in the suburbs, it's the most alienating thing ever. Yes, yes um, totally. Yeah. It's how the incel sees it. And I'm from the suburbs of uh, Northern Virginia, which is just as shitty to walk around. And I feel as if, in a sense, the Elliot Roger McMansion life is a lot like this general middle-class American alienation where you're tied to your parents in a way. Parents mediate all his social interactions because play dates. he can't play really like, talk to kids. The term playdate is like what his parents used when he was a child, and he never grew beyond being it's like, like hanging oh, out. This isn't a playdate anymore. He doesn't know how to chill. He doesn't know how to hang. He definitely does not know how to chill or how to hang. When you think about taking long walks through McMansion development, it's this persistence of non-access. Obviously walking through like the hood is like bad, but there's all this stuff that happens in the cracks and there's all these spaces where one can exist or one can form identity. Sure. But when you're walking through a McMansion development, there's no place for like, a give and take. There's not, you're not allowed to assert yourself in any way. You can't connect with anything. They might as well be profiles that you're swiping right or left on. The garages are closed. The, the, you can't walk on the lawns. There's a way that you're already removed. I'm interested in that and also like how a Chad and a Stacy, what they are in that context of McMansionville. Okay. I agree entirely with what you just said about McMansions might as well be swiping when you walk by like house after house after house. In that area, everything is alienating except the house you live in yourself, which is this castle that is palatial, huge space that's yours. And in this general uh, imaginary, I would say that the Chads and the Stacys 
are the people that drive cars with a hot girl in the front seat. They drive cars like actually going somewhere instead of walking around aimlessly through the because he does eventually get a car, but then he just but, drives yeah, around. Yeah, he never aimlessly. has the hot girl. He has right. a nice car, but not the hot girl. There's one other really interesting point that you make about McMansions, which is their interiority. You make this yeah. point about the disconnect between the external surfaces of McMansion and what goes on inside. Yeah. It's highly uncomfortable. It's incredibly awkward. There's too much space. There's no human component on the inside. It's almost like a prop house, even though it probably costs two million or whatever. It's yeah. like there's a massive disconnect between the way it's trying to signal as this validator of wealth and accomplishment and human value yes. and the actual experience. I mean, I don't know. I have a family member that lives in one of these mansions and it's like the most uncomfortable place I've ever been. Like Thomas <laughs> Kincaid is the artist for McMansions. Those two things go hand in hand, right? And this idea of, okay, well, I have the painting on the wall. I have the eight person dining room, but there's no interiority. You make this point in your text of like the differential between yeah. the external signaling and the actual experience of living inside of one of these houses. Yes, because I think he's so uncomfortable in his own body. The McMansion is a is a great metaphor for the empty and tacky signifiers of, of wealth that have a lot in common with how he gets the Gucci sunglasses and the Armani this and that, <laughs> and how he tries to wear that to like display wealth and ideally attract women. But when it doesn't do that, these things did not deliver what they promised. Yeah, and similarly, these, like, the McMansion does not deliver what it promised. It doesn't. It does. It didn't raise this happy little family that goes on to be happy bourgeois Chads and Stacys that perpetuates the American dream. The beautiful house didn't get me the happy family life. Now I'm going to do a shooting. It didn't really touch on it in, the, in your essay, but his dad turns him on to the secret. And that's oh, the, the yeah, basis yeah. of in, his entire worldview. The word acquisition, I think, is really Perfect, because there is this pa the passiveness of acquiring something. You don't necessarily. Yes. It's not. A, there's no conquest there. The way he talks about acquiring is very passive. Right. The girls come to his father, and his father just acquires the girls. Which is, of but, course, what the secret tells you will happen if you think positively yes. about it. It's just the nexus of so many, like psycho-American phenomena of the last twenty years. It's so poignant. I don't know. Mike, have you read Mike Davis at all? Probably yes. He's written a lot about the Los Angeles landscape and like, you know, the idea of LA is this place where like people shouldn't even really live or like there's no, we don't have a right to this land. Yeah. Like you can't own California because California is really volatile. And like he's written also yeah. about the psychogeography of the buildings that are there as well. But like, yeah, maybe like why Starbucks? Why the drive-by shooting? Why like the UC campus? Like how does the rest of California look to Elliot Roger? How does he see himself as he casts himself in a movie? As he's always taking these YouTube videos. Like, I mean, that's the thing is like, he's backdrop? not clearly like, yeah, he's not an author, but he's very aware that he's a protagonist. a protagonist. Yeah. And he does refer, yeah. I mean, he clearly has a flair for the dramatic, just the way he and he's speaks yeah. is like. And he's around the Hollywood people all the time. Right, right. He's, exactly. He's always surrounded by actors and directors and filmmakers. Right. And that's that's the world that he's like yeah. in. It's just like, if you Only slightly outside. I, I can't help but be like, it's just an equation of like, you put a narcissistic, autistic kid, it's a little bit too rich, put him in Calabasas of like <laughs> all places where, you know, Justin Bieber and where the Kardashians are, he's living around in that, I mean, it's not just suburbia. Yeah, it's not just suburbia, it's the suburbia that 
produces all the culture that sells suburbia back Absolutely. to the rest of the world. Absolutely. That's Basically. a great distinction. So he's sort of like really close to the production of the cultural signifiers, which I think is particularly important because it's not just suburbia, but rather like Tinseltown, Hollywood suburbia. Totally. And even the college campus. I mean, I, I drove there and that is also, it's not just the college campus. It is the co- Hollywood college campus. The image of that is like replicated. I it must. I, mean, I don't know if it's been in any movies, but I feel like, right. isn't the graduate? No, he's just in Santa Barbara, right? That's yeah. a very a strong yeah. parallel to him yeah. too, I think though. There's a whole bunch of bizarre things that don't make sense. Like the effort extended to drive to a different state for the lottery, but the lack of effort like, I, like you know, like his YouTube banner photo is him posing in his car, but there's like garbage cans behind him. Like, why the selective effort? And why the, the like total e- narcissistic egomania, but not having the self-confidence enough to maybe question systems that he's involved in? In the case of Elliot Roger, there's nothing free about him. He doesn't actually resist capitalism, but rather like hyper-internalizes it so much that accelerates its contradictions. But I feel like my thinking has shifted from talking about the way he's embedded in this network and more about the subjectivity of the incel, which I think people actually want to know more about. People ask questions like, how do you cure the incel? How do you approach the incel? You don't really have much to say if it's just, well, it's just like this big desiring assemblage in capitalism. (laughs) We actually have a subjectivity that's the incel subjectivity that we want to make sense of. To follow on that, the question would then be, so, okay, we have the incel subject. What is the panacea for that symptom? If we think of incels as a kind of symptom of an American mindset or condition. It's not really that easy. All the specific incels are so different. I think that Elliot Roger was terminal. I can offer ways to frame the incels as to show the underlying insanity of our everyday life. And I can show the ways in which we drive ourselves insane, but I can't say these magic words that'll like make the incels get girlfriends. I do wonder if he didn't have access to guns and he just had to finish school, he probably would have eventually gotten laid somehow or would have grown up, would have been a little bit less stressed out about the same things. I mean, I know it wasn't going through the same thing, but I had other priorities <laughs> when I was 21 and 22 than I do now. And like, definitely there's things that were important to me that I've grown out of thinking are so important. I do wonder how much of that was just like, if he didn't have this easy out of like another really kind of like overall passive solution of shooting himself or other people. The, I think I think Elliot Roger, even if he had sex, he would hate it. He would hate the women and he would still be violent against them. Or yeah, as, as violent as he possibly could be from his passive position. Yeah, he's a perfect storm though of sense of entitlement, this obsession, impatience, autism, internalized racism. He's the kind of person I imagine who actually... When he's sitting there with nothing to do, like there's actually no inner dialogue happening. Like it's just, it's like, a it's just like a blank mind. Yeah. The air conditioning's yeah. on and that's it. I mean, and there's also so like little how, to the character. How unexceptional he is and how many other people must be having such similar thought processes 
in America. I mean, honestly, I, mean, I think he, yeah. that's an insight there, into I, a very common I think there have to be like literally millions of people. Yeah, exactly. Like he's, like, a, he's also, he's a normie. Like I mean, also, if you look at his Facebook likes, it's Armani Exchange, right. Starbucks, yeah. car brands, you know, like it's he really. He is like the production of an algorithm. His likes, his taste, it's like the algorithm fed them to him and because he just accepted Neural it. Network. Yeah, he yeah. accepted yeah. Every, network. I mean, could you imagine if he like actually like read something anti-capitalist or if his parents... It'd be off-brand for him, so he wouldn't. Right. Off-algorithm for him, so he wouldn't. I do wonder where you're going if, with the rest of your piece. Like, what do you hope to present over the next... What, there's two more segments coming? I see Elliot Roger as comparable to something like Lacan's doctoral thesis on Amy. That was like the grounds for his early work on paranoia. I sort of want to be able to have like the complete Elliot Roger case study. Uh I think that the two most important phases of his life and of this narrative are how he sets the stage and then college. And that is what I plan on being my next installment. I think that Elliot Roger's description of college is a very interesting insight into the insanity of American college experience and the way that the American bourgeoisie become adults and how like when college fails for Elliot Roger, when it doesn't provide what it promised him is when he turns to the magical thinking of winning the lottery. And then he's like, I decided I need to do the shooting because I, once I got to college and was free from my parents, then sex still didn't come to me. I think it shows the underlying insanity of the so-called normal relation like we have with college in our general imaginary as Americans and the Hollywood idea of it. There is a really fascinating Abercrombie and Fitch catalog from 2003 that Zizek wrote text for. It was for like the fall 2003 or something. And so the theme is Zizek talking about back to school and sex and how like school is where people learn sex. And I think that the message of that Abercrombie and Fitch catalog and Zizek's narrative throughout it articulates the Elliot Roger college. Underlying and Ab- logic of how he sees it. <laughs> Abercrombie radicalized. <laughs> has it actually been adapted into anything? Because I don't feel like it has. Has anyone written any fiction about so it? So there was the Law and Order episode that has an Elliot Rogers character. There's some other TV shows that might have similarly done an Elliot Rogers character. But the way they deal with it is very normy, ham-fisted. It doesn't really interrogate the underlying thing. It's just like, oh, well, these misogynist internet people that are like mass shooters and and doesn't really interrogate all the interesting, all the interesting stuff. So that's sort of been like my project to try to get beneath the surface of the incels by way of this Elliot Rogers narrative. You and Eminem. And <laughs> oh yeah. I cannot stand listening to Eminem. But I did read all the lyrics to his new album, and he's 47 years old, and he's still fantasizing of revenge against all the people who committed perceived injustices against him. He's still complaining about Kim, his famous high school ex. He's still complaining about a sixth grade bully, D'Angelo. He he devoted (laughs) both an intro and an entire song to how much he hates his stepdad from his childhood. (laughs) But I think about it, there is this sort of angry white boy mode of feeling this sense of entitlement that the whole world belonged to you and that you should be, I don't know, king, like God of the planet and any injustice 
like committed against you. you like you can never let it go as long as you live even at 47 you're making rap songs about it maybe that's why eminem is the cultural conduit through which america engages with these dark characters but he's obsessed over every perceived injustice he's ever faced in his life and can't let it go similarly to the way elliot roger did uh, that's also just a mental mode i don't quite understand but that's like extraordinarily common i feel like but about the video yeah. specifically well yeah sure the video is steven, steven paddock. paddock yeah yeah. And Stephen Paddock, yeah. I mean, Stephen Paddock is an, well, I kind not of, an incel. he's not an incel. He had an Asian wife. Um, but yeah, I do think he's like an interesting, there's like, there's even, le- there's no ideology. There's nothing we know about him. He's just this complete blank slate, basically. He's one of those millions. Right. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. more high functioning maybe. And it's kind of funny to have like Eminem try to get to his interiority because there's really nothing to go by. There's so little to go by. So it's really just like obviously about Eminem himself then a bit because it has to be. There's an attempt at empathy in in Eminem's Oh, definitely. Well, same with Stan. Stan. Exactly. And so, right. So there's the first half of the video where it's Eminem speaking as though it could be himself and then you realize from the perspective of the killer. And then there's a talk of the benzos and the guns and the power and the surveillance and the fantasy and the event that's about to happen but hasn't happened and the fans are there and they're not there. And then it switches over to this actor who plays the killer. I, I have to read it though aesthetically, and I'm yeah. like, it's so on brand for Eminem well, yeah. to like <laughs> pick up a Las Vegas shooter. There's a seediness to it that like fits into his brand that it was hard for me not to see it as Eminem aestheticizing that, that particular incident. Well, yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess at the end, it's about like anti-gun violence, and you know, we all need to care and we need to vote, and so there's a yeah. good message. Yeah, but- I, mean, I feel like it was more didactic than, for instance, like we could talk about. Nate Lohman did all these paintings of the interior of the suite. Of the- the Mandalay Bay suite. Oh, right. And it got criticized a lot amongst the usual suspects for glorifying male violence, etc. And that was like, yeah, really, there's nothing to glean from it. It's purely a painting of the interior with some guns laying around. Yeah. At least Eminem's like, he's trying, I feel like. It's <laughs> yeah. clearly sensationalizing it, but not just aestheticizing it. And that's there's true. maybe something that's there. That's true. That's true. And there's that yeah. like Hype Williams set that's cut in that's like him just in a blue room. Oh, true. Right. Yeah. Actually, in the inside. Did you watch the video, Julian? Julian didn't watch <laughs> the video. Watch Julian video. only read the only lyrics. The lyrics. <laughs> no, I did watch. He's like, I'm not going to give Eminem one click. <laughs> no, I did watch the video, but it's just Eminem plays the metaphor about his own anxiety issues about getting on stage and it makes a sort of metaphor for this story of Stephen Paddock and then puts an anti-gun message in it. I don't know. I'm more curious about Elliot Roger crying all the time, which is, are you ever going to address that, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> why is Elliot crying? Yeah, why is he crying? Why is such a crybaby? Mike, I feel like you should partner with Gus Van Sant and do like, you know, you saw Elephant, you know, on the Columbine shooting. Yeah, like, right? yeah. I, feel like, I feel like it does need to be made into some kind of cinematic Same. presentation. He so wants it to be so bad. That's one of the goals. The Elliot Roger film would be ideally this ultimate reflection of Hollywood upon itself. Right, of course. That is LA what plays Hollywood itself. wants to do more Square. than anything LA else. Plays like, himself. It wants to make movies about making movies about making movies. I think the movie needs to be a dark comedy because it reads so much like a satire sometimes. And also it has to have like a soundtrack of like waves, uh-huh. like the skater rock band. The obnoxious skater music taunting him, being like, 
Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm a skater. I'm like gross and smoking weed and I'm like fucking and you're not. The second phase will take place on the day of retribution itself, just before the climactic massacre, my war on women. I will attack the very <laughs> girls who represent everything I hate in the female gender, the hottest sorority of UCSB. <laughs> <laughs> We laugh at the sheer cringe of Elliot Rogers' delusional narcissism, but his victims were very real. Weehan Wang, Cheng Yan Hong, George Chen, Catherine Cooper, Veronica Weiss, and Christopher Michaels Martinez all lost their lives in the Isla Vista killings. Many more were injured. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you, Mike Crumpler, for joining us. You can follow Mike on Twitter at mcrumps. For more new models, you can join our community by signing up for our Patreon, which gives you access to weekly Topsoil podcasts and entry into our blazing Discord server. As always, you can check out our main aggregator site at newmodels.io. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash newmodels. Thank you and see you next episode.